So last week, we started our summer series in the Psalms. Say that together ten times fast. Uh, and having spent nearly seven months in Paul's letter... You're actually doing it. Very well. Okay. Having spent seven months in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, once we've now hit the Psalms, you can tell that there's a drastic difference in the kind of, of Scripture that we're reading. In fact, uh, for example, in Ephesians, well, Ephesians is a letter, and we know who it's from. It's from Paul, and we know when it was written between 60 and 62 A.D., from prison, probably in Rome. And we know who it was written to, this church in Ephesus, and probably seven others in Asia Minor. And so, uh, and, and granted, Paul uses this really enthusiastic language, but still, he talks about concrete things like, hey, you've been adopted into the family of God, and you've been rescued by Jesus' blood, and you have been filled with the Spirit, and you have been created for good work, and you're to work for unity. So there's really concrete things in a letter uh, that, that Paul wrote in the, to the Ephesians. But as we enter the Psalms, we're entering an entirely different type of of, of literature. The word psalm comes from the Greek word psalmos, which translates a Hebrew word, mizmor. And mizmor comes from the root meaning to sing or to pluck a musical instrument. So the psalms are created to be sung or chanted. They're poetic. They use flourishing language and imagery and metaphor. The psalms that we have in the Bible are actually a collection of different psalms that were written over a span of a thousand years. So you've got different authors and contributors to the psalms. And somewhere between 4th and 5th century B.C., this group of writings was compiled into the book that we now call Psalms. And in fact, it's structured into five sections, probably after the first five books of the Bible called the Torah, right? And... So we've got different authors over different periods of time written for different occasions. Psalms of laments and hymns and thanksgiving and confidence in God. Psalms of remembrance, wisdom psalms and kingship psalms. Probably roughly seven different genres. And over the summer we're going to be sampling almost all of those different genres. Um, now, for millennia... Thousands of years, the Psalms have formed kind of the, the hymnal for uh, Jewish worship and also Christian worship. Uh, they strike nearly every human emotion. And many of the early Psalms, up until recently, have been direct quotations of the Psalms in Scripture. So... As we engage in the Psalms this summer, I want us to do it in a heart of worship. And you notice maybe the last two weeks now, we've tried to integrate the Psalm into the call to worship, into different aspects of the service. Because these uh, are made to help us enter into worship. So, I'm going to ask you to stand, which is good for you anyway, because it's so hot in here. Um, I'm going to read Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent... Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate or a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, 
nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Father, guide us by your Holy Spirit. As we look at these ancient words written by King David so long ago, I pray that you would shed light on what they may have meant to him and that they would mean something to each of us that gives you glory. Amen. You may be seated. So after taking the time to say all these different genres of psalms and how there's seven different main types, there are some psalms that don't fit into any of those same t- seven types, and this is one of them. Psalm 15 is sometimes known as an entrance psalm. And the idea is that maybe a psalm like this was used as a call to worship, exactly how Nathaniel did this evening. In fact, Nathaniel found that call to worship in the covenant hymnal, so somebody else thought of that too. Uh, so used maybe in worship in the temple, in the synagogue, um, as a call to worship, as a way to approach God. Others have suggested that Psalm 15 was used as a way to teach people. So the idea is that maybe the, the teacher calls out, O Lord, who may dwell in your tent, who may ascend your holy hill? And then the kids or the students would say, well, the person of integrity who works righteousness and on and on and on. So uh, other scholars have pointed out how in Psalm 15 there's kind of ten different attitudes or actions that it talks about, kind of linking up with the Ten Commandments. So there's another way. And, and the way I read this psalm is, is like, I bet you it was used in all of these different ways and more throughout. Remember, this is for, written thousands of years ago, and the, the Jewish tradition and the church has had this as part of our worship language for all that time. I imagine it's been used in a number of different ways to teach and to bring us into God's presence. So, here's what's really important to you, because you're hot and you want to fall asleep. Why is Psalm 15 important to us? Any of the Psalms, for instance. Um, you know, I'm reading through Samuel, come uh, on, my personal time. Samuel is so easy to read because it's all these stories about people, and I love stories, and the the, the Gospels are easy to read because they're stories about Jesus, but here are these Psalms, and a lot of times you don't know what's going on, you don't understand what the context is, they're just these weird, oh Lord, our Lord, I don't talk like that in my daily life, so how is it that these Psalms are at all approachable for us? What, what, What good is it? Why read it? Why preach on it? Why does it matter? Well, if the superscript can be believed, and most scholars think on Psalm 15 it can, we have learned that, Psalm, that King David wrote this psalm. Now, King David, by no means a perfect guy, killed somebody, committed adultery, and that's just the stuff we know about. But the Bible also talks about King David being a man after God's own heart. We know that David had a really close relationship with God. And David was also, besides being a king and a shepherd, he was also a musician. Oh, and he was a warrior, true. But, um, yeah, he's a musician, and he, uh, he played the harp, even. Yeah, that's a manly instrument now, because David did it. But, uh, so he put all of these things, his relationship to God, to psalms, to music, to poetry. And some of them are exalting God. God, you are awesome. You are majestic. And some of them he must have written in the pit of despair, because some of his psalms are really dark and take us to very deep places. 
So one thing we can gain from the psalm then, knowing that David wrote it, is this is one of the ways that he approached God. These psalms can give you and I language of how we can approach God in any circumstance, because they cover almost every emotion. When you're high, you know, on life, um, you can approach God through the psalms. And when you're lower than low, you can approach God through the psalms. And when you have questions about what's going on, you can approach God through the psalms. Psalm 15 in particular speaks of our posture as we get ready to approach God. It begins with the question, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? This is fun. Classic Hebrew poetry. So in our poetry, usually in in English, right, we're controlled by different things like rhyme. Roses are red, violets are blue. That's a rhyme. That's all I know. But, uh, and then meter. So you might... All you English people out there, English majors, uh, maybe you're going to write a poem in iambic pentameter. So, da, 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 and you have, you have this different meter that's going on. Hebrew poetry doesn't use any of that stuff. It's really frustrating and confusing. But it does use uh, its own forms of, uh, of forms. And one of those forms is parallelism. So here in verse 1, we have one line containing two phrases. Hang with me now. Hang with me. One line containing two phrases. And the two phrases contain different words, but those different words communicate a similar idea or a same idea. So here is phrase one. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Here is phrase two of the same line, the parallel line, who may dwell in your holy hill? Those are different words. But they're trying to impress upon us the same idea. Phrase one, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Literally, who may sojourn or spend a short time in your tabernacle? The tent of meeting that would move around with the Israelites where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was believed to be. The second line uh, has a, uh, communicates a similar idea. Someone coming before God. But there is a subtle shift in vocabulary. The language is more permanent. So instead of abide, who may abide in your tent, the Hebrew word ger means to pass through or to stay there temporarily. But the word here in the second phrase is sakhan, which means to stay indefinitely, to stay a longer period of time. So instead of a tent, which is mobile, we now have this image of God's holy hill, which would be Mount Zion, which would be where the temple was built later on, of stones and mortar, permanent. Both these phrases combine, like a transformer, to form something better. Both the tent of God and the temple of God refer to God's presence. So in effect... Here's what the psalmist is asking. Who may be in God's presence? Who can draw close to God? What kind of person does God accept? That's the force of that question in those two phrases. So here's how that question impressed me devotionally this week. I don't often ask that question. Like... This evening, when you are coming to church, and, you know, if you've got kids, you're probably focused on, how do I get them all here on time? And if, you know, you're hot, you've got other things on your mind. How many of us actually thought, I'm getting ready to come into the presence of the living God with the people of God, and reflected on your week, and how it was that, you know, you followed Jesus this week. 
And before you came, how many of you confessed any sin? And it was like, I'm coming before the living God this evening. I better reflect on my life a little bit. Well, your pastor didn't. Well, actually, I did tonight because I was studying this psalm. But normally I don't. And that's what really hit me this week, is that this psalm um, devotionally is good for us because it reminds us that sometimes I think we can take our faith too cavalier, too casual. And I love the fact that God is approachable. He comes to us in Jesus the Christ, and and that's all well and good and, and true. But at the same time, our God is holy. He's awesome. He created the galaxies and and your DNA and everything in between. You're alive because he wills you alive right now. And and we need to remember that aspect of God as well. So, how should we approach God? What I love about this psalm is what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you need to be more religious It doesn't say you need to wear certain kinds of clothes. It doesn't say a lot of things about religious jumping through hoops. And in fact, uh, in David's world, the pagan religions around him were very interested in ritual, saying exactly the right words, but those same religions then would turn around and sacrifice their children. This psalm says the person who is able to approach God, it's not so hung up on all the religious do's and don'ts. What it emphasizes is how we treat other people. And you know what the word for that is? Holiness. Let me say that again because it probably needs to sink in. See, a lot of times when we hear the word holiness, we think of got to dress a certain way. Got to go to enough Bible studies throughout the week. Got to be really pious acting. Holiness in Scripture almost always refers to how we treat other people. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. Because people are made in the image of God. So, as we take a look at the type of person who may come into God's presence, I want you to keep in mind that this is a psalm. It's a poem. It's not a systematic theology. It's not a comprehensive teaching of all the Bible says about what a good person is or about what type of person can come into God's presence. It's representative. So the first thing mentioned is that the holiness God requires is integrity. That is, who you are when no one else is looking. Who you are when no one else is looking. To have integrity is to do the right thing even when it costs you. Or even when it doesn't gain you anything. To have integrity is to be whole. Integrated. Mind, body, spirit, all following God together, working well. And the person with integrity that God is looking for practices righteousness. In Hebrew, tzedek. Tzedek has to do with relational wholeness. So um, who may approach God, who may dwell in his tent or come up his holy hill? The person who is integrated, mind, body, spirit, following God. And the person who practices tzedek, relational wholeness. Seeking reconciliation with people. Seeking strong and whole relationships. 
We saw that theme in Ephesians where Paul repeatedly said, Work, strive for unity. Jesus has died so that different tribes and nations can become one. And now that you believe that, now that you've done that, invest yourself in building and maintaining those relationships. Another theme that we saw emphasized in Ephesians shows up here. Speak truth from the heart. Jesus teaches us that the fundamental issue with humanity is our heart. We have a major problem. It's not just our behavior, it's the core of who we are. Jesus said, you know, when you do nasty things or say nasty things, it all comes out of your heart. So the person of God will speak truth from the heart. Now I was just thinking, that's probably not necessarily a good thing. If I speak truth out of my heart, Sometimes if, you, if I said what I really thought, it, it wouldn't be flattering. It wouldn't be good, right? So because my heart's corrupt. Newsflash, so is yours. And um, so we, we have problems. So David modifies that in verse 3 when he says, and does not slander with his tongue. So speak truth from your heart. But, but, but before you do, don't slander with your tongue either. So make sure that that truth from your heart is, is something good, something that will benefit people. It's the old adage, maybe your mother told you, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. If we're going to practice ascetic or relational righteousness, then we won't be talking badly about each other. Which, by the way, this whole thing about not slandering your neighbor, it's a really fun sentence in Hebrew. Because literally that word slander is regal, which comes from the root regal, which means your foot or other parts of your body. But, um, it, so literally it's don't walk around with your tongue. Don't be a busybody. Don't be a gossip. Don't walk around with your tongue. That's how they've translated slander out of that. Holiness and being a busybody gossip, they don't mix. Okay? So in the next couplet of parallels, David tells us that the godly person does his neighbor no wrong and does not shame his close friends or relatives. I'm not sure you need any commentary on that. Do your neighbor no wrong. Don't shame your friends or relatives. I just preached it. There you go. In, in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, who's my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. So you can't weasel out. Okay? So just be nice to everybody. Love everybody. All right? And again, notice the emphasis is on how we treat others. Worshiping God is not just some private experience that I have. Dang, I've got a good prayer life. I treat others like crap. That's not holiness. That's actually not integrity because you're being two different kinds of people. I would argue that a good prayer life would lead to holiness and treating others well. I don't think you, you don't have the private thing. But, but worshiping God, following Jesus, is not just something we can do privately. And you guys get that. That's why you're here in a community. You, know? you could just listen to me online or somebody better than me online and, uh, and, not, and not join in the fray of a really hot sanctuary on an August night, right? So, uh, but seriously, this is, notice that this psalm is all about how we are interacting with people. The next line of parallelism tells us what kind of people the godly value. The two lines are supposed to be taken together, and they appear to be opposites, but they communicate the same idea. So here it is. In whose eyes, this is the person who approaches God, uh, has in whose eyes a reprobate or a vile person is despised, but also who honors those who fear the Lord. So the, the person who is able to approach God to come into his presence does not honor those who have rejected God, 
But they do honor those who fear God, who love Him. So taken together, this line is communicating what the values, uh, the the kind of values we have uh, for those who follow God. And what do we value in our culture? The rich, the beautiful, even the deviant. Like the most popular hits on YouTube are usually the videos that are really screwed up, right? In our culture, we're so into celebrity well, at least the U.S. Olympic coverage has actually hired Ryan Seacrest to tell me how many tweets different athletes are getting. Maybe I am getting old, but like, does anybody care how many tweets Michael Phelps got? I, I don't care. But they actually saw it worth enough money to hire Ryan Seacrest to stand there and have a tweet count or something like that. Just show me the medals, man. But James Montgomery Boyce writes that we've reached a day when people would rather be envied than admired. We've reached a day where people would rather be envied than admired. See, the idea here in Psalm 15 is to despise the person who has rejected God. That doesn't mean that we don't associate with people that don't love God. It doesn't mean that we don't love them or serve them. I mean, the rest of the Bible says pretty strongly to love your neighbor as yourself, right? But at the same time, we don't look up to them either. And I wonder, you know, how much time do I spend watching entertainment that is really pretty slanderous? Or people who turn their back on God. And how much honor and dignity and value do I show to people who maybe aren't as popular or aren't as pretty or handsome or talented. But they serve day in and day out and do the little things that matter out of love. Those are the people that scripture says we should lift up and honor. The psalm continues and we learn that the person of God keeps their word. He swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. If you make an agreement or sign a contract, what this is saying is fulfill it, even if it hurts, even if the contract goes sour on on the other end, even if it's difficult. Think of how many times you hear in the news about people going back on their word, especially in college sports. I verbally... Say I'm going to the UW, and then you don't. You go to like some California school or Lane Kiffin. Enough said. But I mean, you've got people that just keep going back on, on their contracts and hear the word is saying, no, when you make a commitment, follow through on it. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes even further and says, don't make any oaths at all. He says, just let your yes be yes or your no be no. Uh, anything beyond that is of evil. And, you know, I wonder if... I and we overcommit sometimes. And maybe we should be more careful in saying yes and no and, and to think about things. Can I, can I really follow through on this commitment? Because it sounds really great now, but is it something I'm going to be able to stick with for a long time? Finally, we're to care for one another and how we use our wealth. Here's the, the parallelism. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Again, folks, this is a psalm. It's not an economic study. It's not a systematic theology. It's not all the Bible has to say about money. The idea here is not loaning money to the poor for their sustenance at interest. In an agrarian society, if you were poor and living off the land, one drought, one bad season puts you destitute for a year. 
Whereas wealthy landowner Chad over here uh, could say to Eric, who just lost his crops for the year, okay, I'll get you and your family by for 30%. That was the standard rate in the ancient Near East, around 30% interest. Think of uh, payday loans. It's kind of like that. So the idea here has nothing to say about uh, charging interest for investments or anything like that. But it has to do with the poor. When a poor person needs a cloak or food, you don't charge them interest on it. The other parallel to that is if you have power, if you have wealth, you don't use that in a court of law to bribe the judge. Or if you are the judge, you don't receive the bribe. It's kind of ambiguous in the Hebrew, which is great because it probably means both. So don't receive bribes, don't give bribes. It's about justice. It's about doing what's right by people. By the way, in, in the Old Testament, it was illegal, uh, according to Hebrew law, to charge interest to any Israelite. Okay. David closes the psalm with words of assurance. He who does these things will never be shaken. I'd like to sit down now, but those are not very assuring words. He who does these things will never be shaken. Anyone out there do these things all the time perfectly? Yeah, I didn't think so. So, what then? Why, David, why did you write this psalm? Here's the interesting thing. I bought this great book that talks about the history of... Oh, I'm nerding out on you. Talks about the history of how Psalms have been interpreted since the early church. And even talks about um, some, some of the ways that, that the Jewish people did. And almost always, it's believed that David wrote Psalm 14 and 15 together. You guys know what Psalm 14 says? You might recognize it from a quote out of Romans. Here's part of Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You know, why even write Psalm 15 if that's true? So great, now what? Can anybody abide in God's tent or His holy hill? Can anyone come into God's presence? Because according to these standards, I can't. But thanks be to God. Eric read the good news earlier. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was there in the whole beginning. He was the light of the world. You know what it says in verse 14? That the Word, Jesus, became flesh, and He literally tented among us. He tabernacled among us. Think Psalm 15. Who may dwell in His tent? Nobody. So God brings the tent to us. Isn't that awesome? He brings His presence, the very tabernacle of God, among people who couldn't ascend that holy hill. Amen? Yes. Jesus condescends. He bends that mountain of holiness down to our level so that we can approach the living God. Through his death, 
Through His resurrection, Jesus not only forgave our sin, but He makes us new, makes us the kinds of people who then actually can live out Psalm 15. Now here's the real mind trip. I know you thought I was ending there. I could, that'd be a good message, but check this out. And I just, I just don't want to give up on Ephesians yet, right? So just keep thinking biblical, big story. And we just went through Ephesians, chapter 2, the end there. It talks about that, that through Christ, you and I, the church, all those who follow Christ, are being built into what? The temple of God's Spirit. Okay. So Psalm 15, who may abide in his tent? Nobody. Starting according to Psalm 14, and according to nobody here raised their hand when I said, could you live up to Psalm 15? So what happens? God brings the tent to us in Jesus, tabernacled among us, but doesn't just leave us there. Doesn't just say, oh, you're forgiven, go on, keep sinning. He says, no, I'm actually building you into something better. I am building you, church, into the temple of the living God, the very place where his glory dwells. So now... You and I get to go out, filled with the Spirit, splashing out of us, reflecting His kingdom, reflecting, reflecting His love and His goodness to our neighbors and our friends and to the world that desperately need the good news. Because if we're any of us honest with ourselves about who can approach God, you can't get there without Jesus. Dang, that's good. In Christ then, Psalm 15 becomes something that shapes us into who we are, into who we're created to be, rather than a psalm that just makes us feel bad about who we are. Amen? So, I've got a word, you know, if you feel isolated, if you feel alienated from God, let me encourage you to trust in what Jesus has done. Not only are you forgiven, but this Psalm 15 can be a vision, a picture of the life that you are now empowered to live. Do you join me in prayer? Oh, Father, where do we even begin? Lord, for those who have been walking with you, following you, been part of your church for a long time, uh, we just confess that sometimes we take you for granted, our approach to you, that we can pray to you, that we can seek your face and have a relationship with you. I'm thankful, Lord, for this psalm that reminds us that it's not that simple, that you are indeed high above us, almighty, holy in every way. And as I take an honest look at myself, I don't even come close to that. So, Lord, we appreciate afresh what you've done in Jesus the Christ in putting on flesh and dwelling among us and going to the cross, making a way for us not only to be forgiven, to be, but also to be made new. And I pray, Lord, that you would right now on each one of us give us a vision for new life. I pray that you would blow fresh Spirit wind on each person, Lord, that you would give them a vigor for life, a spring in their step, a, a direction of worth and value as we seek after you, Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray.